Hey, Peter, how you doing? Hey, I am doing good. How are you, sir? Good, good. So I was listening to your recent podcast episode on Compile Swift about release cycles. And yes. your idea is like, should Apple release a new OS every year in September, essentially for all their platforms, more or less? Which I guess they kind of didn't do that this year because 13.2 didn't come out till late October. So in that case, I guess they didn't follow that pattern because the real public ready release wasn't ready until late October and everybody else was stuck with the beta when 13.0 was released. Because I know about you, but 13.0 definitely didn't feel like it was a fully baked release without any bugs. But what do you think? Like, do you think that's even going to ever be possible the way their marketing strategy works? Yeah, I think it was real interesting. And I think that this year in particular was, you know, I think I sort of called it a rough, you know, kind of rollout. And I think it's getting difficult for Apple, right? Because on the one hand, there's this expectancy from the public that every year we all sort of know roughly the month that new devices, new software. We know, for example, in our industry where the developer conference is going to be. And there's that expectation. But I think as we learned this year, Apple, they're no longer, you know, as they once said, just a computer company. So they have so many platforms that it's getting very difficult to meet that sort of calendar cycle and arguably produce the, the kind of Apple quality that we're all used to getting. You know, for example, I didn't even install 13.0 because, you know, I knew 13.1 was going to be just around the corner. So I didn't even bother. Yeah, that was so weird this year with like 13.1 beta being out while 13.0 beta is still out. That was so strange. Right. And then, of course, the jokes as well about, well, I'll wait till tomorrow to 13.1. And then it ends up being true. And then 13.2. And you're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? You know, so when you see things like that, I think as developers, to us, it suggests almost an uncertainty with the delivery from a company. You know, we're not sure how good this is. So we quickly rushed this one out as opposed to waiting. And I think that's kind of the problem that we've got now with Apple's software. I feel like we've been spoiled over the last year. I think like their release cycle is yearly, but it doesn't mean that each year has been as significant as the previous year. Hey, I wanted to let you know that Empower App Show is looking for sponsors and patrons. Our audience is growing and we'd love to showcase you, your company and your product on our show. If you want to be a patron, you can find us at patreon.com slash empowerapps.show. Or if you want to be a sponsor, reach out to me personally at leo at brightdigit.com. Your support is greatly appreciated, and we look forward to showcasing your business and product on our show. iOS 7, huge release. iOS 8, not as big. iOS 9, I don't know if that was a big release, but the iOS 7 was a big one because of the big UI changes, yeah. right? And then, like, we've been kind of spoiled with 11 and 12, especially 12 was a fantastic release because it was all bug fixes and making sure the operating system works on old devices. And then, like, I feel like this year it was like, oh, right, this is what it typically is. Well, not typically, but worse than usual, right. because they, like, pumped so many new features into this iOS release with support for Swift UI, kind of doing the branching with Pad OS cutting off 32-bit applications on Catalina and supporting Catalyst at the same time. This was a big year, yeah. and it's like, oh, yeah, this is a problem when you have these big release years where for us developers, like, we kind of have to hop onto the new stuff if we're going to support the new mm -hmm. stuff. But at the same time, for, like, the public, it's like, yeah, I, I told people, like, wait till 13.2. There's just no reason other than, like, unless you're a big fan of dark mode to, like, upgrade your phone right away. Right, and I think that was the problem is, you know, I mean, Apple... 
was in a very difficult position this year because, you know, we knew from WWDC they were going to give us so much this year. I mean, arguably, I think it was almost a case of, boy, you know, if, if you could have broken this down into something this year and something next year, that would have been a better way to go because they gave us so much and so much to get excited about, not only from a developer perspective, but from a user perspective. And I think that's part of the problem with, you know, this really nice looking dark mode. Once everybody heard about it, you know, it's like, yeah, I want this now because it looks so fantastic on the devices. Right, right. And so at that point, you know, it's like, well, as soon as this comes out, you know, people are going to install it and rush to do it. And then they're going to get, you know, potentially hit with some of these bugs. You know, like, for example, switching to the Mac OS platform for a moment, I only the last week decided to go ahead and install Catalina because, you know, it was burning me up that I was using Xcode but didn't have that live Canvas view in there. Yeah, I bet. And that was like the one thing. It's like, I really want this. So I installed it. And yeah, I'll be honest, I kind of regret it. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, the price that I have paid, you know, and, and I think like many, luckily I have two machines. So only one of them's got it. But right, from a sort of an everyday user's perspective, especially with the phones and the iPads, you know, and talking about iPad, I mean, iPad OS, oh my gosh, what a fantastic thing. So there's all this expectancy. And at the same time, you know, Apple, even the amount of money and the size of the company, they only have so many resources to get these things finished. Yeah, you'd almost think they'd been working on 13 for longer than a year, right? right? Like, and simultaneously doing bug fixes on 11 before the 12 release and then kind of merging things together. Well, we'll get into like managing teams, obviously, but like, it just seems like it's hard for Apple. I try to tell people, like, if you had to describe Apple, it's like a designer, a marketing driven company, which has its benefits in the way their stuff is built and looks. But then it seems like when it comes to development, it isn't quite as robust in some ways to a lot of other ecosystems. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, you're quite right. I think we think of Apple as this brand that gives us all of the cool looking things. And we also know that, you know, a majority of the other companies that we won't name, wait to see what Apple does and then try and replicate it. And then on the flip side, you know, Apple being such a like you say, a marketing and a brand-driven, you know, beautiful design kind of company, both at hardware and software. And not to say that their engineering isn't good because, it, I mean, it's fantastic, right? But then you have other companies like Microsoft who, you know, they fell by the wayside a bit, but they've got themselves back together. And now they're coming back and they have that solid, arguably the other direction. They have so much focused on engineering that that's why things on their side don't look so great. And there's no in-between. And now, right. you know, like the Surface, for example, is starting to look really attractive. And I worry that, you know, Apple, please don't forget that you need this structure underneath to keep these things alive and going, you know? Right. And the Surface's competitor essentially is the iPad, which is like has its benefits and the fact that it's minimalistic. Right. But then you do lose the benefits of having a robust operating system that you can run scripts on or you know, do multitasking in a lot of easier ways. A lot of that customability that you get with Mac OS, you lose on an iPad. And I see, I like it, but I can see why a lot of people prefer to use Windows over iOS for their serious heavy duty work. Yeah, it's really tough because, you know, like this year, and I'm sure we've all been there. I say this every year, but this year really felt like the one once they showed us iPad OS. And I thought, my gosh, you know, other than putting Xcode aside, this is the year that I theoretically can do everything on my iPad. So I tried it. You know, I went for a week with iPad OS 13, which I really love, by the way. 
But I found that it's like, no, there's still something that says carry my laptop with me as well. What was it? You know, putting Xcode aside, I think it's that, I don't know, maybe it's just kind of, you know, I'm kind of that old man of tech and have been around too long and I can't break that thing in my head that says, I got to do a lot of typing today, so I need a laptop or, you know, something like that. And I'm thinking too. Do you have a keyboard attached to it? I do. And actually, you know, it's funny enough, it's one of those things where I tell myself every time I get an iPad and I have the iPad Pro 12 inch is... Same here. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm not going to get a, you know, a hundred different cases, but I always end up getting a bunch to find the one that feels right. And right now I have, do you know that bridge keyboard, B-R-Y-G? No, no. We'll post a link in the notes. Okay. Yeah, so I've got this bridge keyboard. I had the Logitech one as well, but the beauty of the iPad is it's so versatile when you've just got the iPad. Yes. And it's so thin. And I hate putting it in a case that then adds bulk. But (laughs) at the same time, I want the keyboard. Well, this bridge one is great because I can put it in the keyboard and it's got like a bracket. Yep. And you just pull it out and it's like, that's it. Now I've got my iPad again. You know, so it's not like a case that you pop it in and out of. And so, you know, for writing things like blog posts, emails, all those usual things, I'm now using it like a laptop. Yep. And it's working great, especially with iPad OS and that ability to finally access external drives, which I think is huge. Yes, yes. Especially for people like us, you know, content creators, because we need it. We need that space. And I don't want to buy a one gig iPad. Right. Uh, sorry, one terabyte iPad or something like that, because it's crazy, right? You know. So I have the iPad 12, iPad Pro 12 inch, second gen. Okay. And I just bought an iMac back in June. I upgraded my iMac. Got an Apple Magic Keyboard with it, which I don't use oh. because I use a mechanical keyboard for my iMac. So I yep. take the Magic Keyboard. I set that up in uh, what Studio Neat has. It's called a Canopy. And you just basically okay. stick your Apple Keyboard on it. And then you could use the Canopy as a stand for your iPad Pro. Oh, So I'm like okay. using an actual Apple Keyboard with the iPad, which is just awesome. And it's a lot more robust than like their smart keyboards are, I think. And just a lot, like it feels just bulky enough to be like really useful to use while at the same time, it feels light enough to carry around, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I got you because I do a similar thing. I'm not one of those people that can use the on-screen keyboard. It drives me nuts. For example, it sounds kind of funny, but even on my iPhone, I hate even just writing a text message with that thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. And even so my MacBook Pro is kind of my main machine. And it's a 2018. Nice. And so, you know, it's got the touch bar and everything else. And a working keyboard. I was going to say, it's got a working (laughs) keyboard, but it's that keyboard. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny how that muscle memory of your hands gets used to things. So I don't mind that keyboard, but I can't use it on a daily basis for like eight hours. Okay. So I have an Apple external keyboard that I use. Because it's just that spacing of the keys and everything else feels good. Yep, yep. And I do have a mechanical one because I just think there's something about that thing of like you push a key, you know it happened, you know. The tactability, you like need yeah. that. That's what you lose on these touch devices right now. Right. Seems like. It is. It's one of those where it's like, oh, did I hit the key? Yeah, I guess I did. And if the OS is having a bit of a moment, it takes a second and then it's like, oh, I did type the key. So when I was looking for an external one for the iPad, it was important that it felt like a keyboard. As you said, those Apple ones, you know, like the Apple smart covers, I don't want to say it's terrible, but it's like typing with a sponge, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. So Peter, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. I'm Peter Whittem. I have a developer background. I'm not ashamed to say it. I started out with Flash. I think everybody remembers that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that long ago. 
and I had a web background because of Flash and then moved into mobile. And that's how I discovered, you know, Objective-C and all of those languages. Swift, of course, is my favorite language these days. And then after doing that for uh, lots of years, you know, eventually the management thing gets you. And then uh, so now I actually manage some development teams, which is very interesting. It's a very different way to think about things, but you still have to switch that developer brain on every so often. So that's kind of where I'm at today, you know, and, and I love sharing everything I can with everybody. So I have like a compile, the compileswift.com website in the podcast that you mentioned. Yep. I put up all my Swift things because for me, it's always been a goal to give back to the communities that essentially helped make my career. Yeah, I, I know exactly what that's like. So I wanted to talk today. It seems like your big expertise was on teams, or at least you wanted to talk about running iOS development teams. Like I can name a few issues that come with iOS in particular, but what have you seen as the biggest issues with running a development team that's doing iOS development? So it's interesting because one of the issues that you have that comes up as a solo developer, but really hits home when you're working with teams is things like device profile management and the signing certificates and signing code. Yes. Yeah. It's not a nightmare. But even today, it's way more complicated than I feel it needs to be. Yes. I think that is one of the issues is like there's no easy way, like Fastlane helps a lot, but there's still yeah. no easy way of like keeping that stuff in a repository of some sort for making sure that teams have access to those assets, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, we use, for example, for source code, you know, no surprise, I think we use Git repositories, which is kind of the standard these days. and to be fair, you know, we're still running with Xcode 10 right now. Nothing against 11. I actually like 11 a lot. But a part of the other thing with the, working with the team is you all have to agree to use the same version of tools. Right. And so whilst the Git integration in Xcode 10 is good, you know, I still say to everybody, okay, you know, as far as repository and source code management, let's do it outside of the terminal or some other third-party software where it helps lessen the problems, shall we say, with, like you say, you still can put your signing certificates and everything else, but at least everybody's working on a similar platform at that point. Right. Like, uh, unless you're going to be like hopping onto Swift UI, like, I don't see any reason to go to Xcode 11. They're both, uh, what's Xcode 10? Is that Swift 5.0 or 5.1? If I remember rightly, I think it's 5.0, at least 5.0 yeah. built in now with Xcode. Right. So unless you're going to be doing like property wrappers or any of that crazy Swift UI combined stuff, that's kind of scaffolding it. Like, yeah, there's no real reason to go to 11. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, that's another part of it. You know, working with a team of developers is that discussion of when do we bring in these new technologies? Should we bring in these new technologies? And how do we bring them in? As we were discussing before, you know, we still work with a lot of Objective-C. So whilst we're bringing Swift into the fold now, we have to be very careful how we do it. And so right now, even thinking about Swift UI is one of those things of, you know, well, doesn't feel appropriate now, but at some point we have to have that discussion as a team. So let's ask the easy question, a brand new project, would you use Swift UI? Because that's an easier question to answer because then it could be just be like, 
sorry, if you have 12 or you have you know, below 13, like just say, screw it. You got to like have the latest operating system and then you could start using Swift UI right away. But then I could see how depending on your app and depending on your target audience, you could be like, well, they're kind of slow upgraders and they might have iPhone sixes. So, you know, we'll have to support only UI kit. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's a really good question because this is one that we faced, you know, was, you know, well, in general, you always face that discussion of how far back do you support? And one of the nice things about the iOS platform is how well Apple does at supporting older devices in as much as it can, you know, for the older platforms. But at some point, you have to decide when you're going to break free from those and move forward. But because of the rapid adoption of iOS, it does help that process. But for right now, I would say, you know, if I was starting a new product today, I don't know that I would use Swift UI because I know that my user base, mm-hmm. they have the older devices, for example. You know, and interestingly, over the past, I would say maybe the past year, it's very interesting how much the iPhone, what's it called? The, is it the 10R or the 10R iPhone? 10R or 11. You know, yeah. whichever the sort of the budget version is. That has risen up through the user, you know, statistics really fast, which is a very interesting, you know, discovery because, you know, you will always think, oh, people are going to buy the latest and they do. But surprisingly enough, the R is the most popular device right now, at least for some of our users and the apps that I tend to work with. So I would have to say right now that Swift UI, not this year. You know, maybe next year after Dub Dub, we'll see what they give us. But right now, it's just too new. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big learning curve and there is technical issues that come into it that you you kind of hit brick walls with. And it's like, yeah. you know, they're going to have that stuff worked out. It, it's what I keep thinking about is it, keep, it reminds me of like developing on the Apple Watch, say, five years ago when it first came out. It's like you could mm. do that and you probably could get an app out. But like the amount of technical friction, I want to say that as you develop in a project like that, it's going to mount and mount to the point where like you may as well just wait until they come out with the next release and fix a lot of these issues and like add documentation. That's another thing, right? Right, right. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, for SwiftUI, definitely the big thing is documentation at the moment. And it's a little frustrating because, you know, I think we can all agree that once we saw SwiftUI, Immediately, we realized, oh, this is the way forward. This idea of, you know, the data powering the view and just, you know, describing the view and letting everything else take care of it. It's so quick to generate views and rapid adoption from a development standpoint that it's very hard to ignore the technology in a production environment. But you know that right now it's like, well, it's it's my safest option. Yeah, and it solves two problems that we've had with UI development on iOS, which is the lack of a source of truth, the issues of working with storyboards and teams, the issues of having a declarative UI, which we lack if we code our UI. I mean, yeah, it just hits so many of those right spots when it comes to UI development. So, like, I guess, do you have any recommendations as far as what guidelines you follow when you decide how a team is going to move forward with developing the user interface, assuming we don't go with Swift UI? Yeah, and, and in fact, actually, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the things I should have mentioned that you brought up there with a team, one of the biggest UI problems is those storyboards. It's a horrible merge conflict nightmare once you start bringing code in from multiple uses, even when you try to 
avoid sharing the same files and everything else. And so, you know, what we found was as nice as it is to use the storyboards, it actually makes more sense and it's safer from a team development standpoint to actually just generate those views in code. I think if you have more than like two people or three people on a team, I would say, yeah, storyboards are going to be more friction than it's worth. Yeah. And especially once, I mean, numerous times, and I think we've all been there, you know, developers have come to me and they're like, oh, these constraints are just making me cry. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I feel it. Yeah, and even if you do do <laughs> you storyboards, know. break them apart as small as you possibly can because, like, that's one of the issues is storyboards have brought so many of these benefits of being able to see segues between different views. But, like, I think in the long term, we'd be better off with doing more, like, using storyboard references and breaking apart those views as small as possible so that way one person on a team can work on one storyboard. Like, let's say you have a small team. You have one person working on one storyboard that isn't going to affect another view controller that's not being used at the same time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's funny that you mentioned the storyboard references because when I first discovered those in a just a personal project I was playing around with, I thought to myself, I was like, oh, this is the answer to the problem. And then I realized, well, it sort of is, but it's also abstracting the problem away that I'm just not seeing it happen. But the storyboard referencing helps a lot. And I think that once you get that mindset as well of saying, okay, you know, think about compositing the views and breaking it down that way in a sort of a code level equivalent of doing a, a storyboard reference, you know, make a sub view and bring that in and think of them as, I don't know if you know React, but think of them as right. components rather than just, you know, these things we throw on a storyboard. It starts to help a little bit, but then you also have to make sure that everybody who's working on the project understands that philosophy of how this works. Yes. Yeah. So how long have you been doing iOS development? Uh, let me think. I, I, oh gosh, I have been doing it before the watch came out. So definitely been playing around with it that long. I was playing around with it before Swift came out in 2014. And then as soon as I saw the WWDC with Swift, that's when I knew, you know how you have those things of, yeah, this is my future right here. So what have you seen change over those years as far as the issues when it comes to iOS development teams? I think, you know, it's definitely getting a lot better. I think at first, especially with the early days of Swift, it was almost daily discussions of what's changed today and how do we make this work. And I feel that now, for example, it's a lot easier for teams to work remotely from each other. And that there isn't that need to have those constant discussions. You know, we practice Scrum. So, you know, we're used to those daily tag ups and things like that. But I think from a, you know, Xcode has gone a long way to making it feel more like a team development rather than just, you know, a whole bunch of people working on code separately and then bringing it together. So that's helped a lot. Yeah, I think Xcode has improved a lot. Like you go back, it's not just Swift, but I feel like, as an Objective-C developer, I started probably around the same time you did, but like, I just feel like the development experience is a lot easier. Yeah. Like basic stuff like UI testing doesn't feel so foreign or beta testing. And I think part of it is the mm -hmm. fact that there weren't a lot of developers when the App Store first started. And now that like it's been flooded with developers, essentially, like it's become a much more developer-centered yeah. yeah. ecosystem, so to speak. So it seems like it has gotten a lot better. 
And at the same time, I think more issues have cropped up that people didn't notice initially. Right. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, I think that it's definitely brought to the surface more, you know, those little things that maybe we just all took for granted and accept. Because, you know, the other thing is, too, especially with the little things, sometimes you say to yourself, well, you know, maybe I've got this wrong. And you don't immediately think, oh, this is a bug with the platform, with the tool. You you know, yes. as a developer, you think, I've messed this up somehow. And then it's funny how it's hard for us to accept that, oh, no, you know, my thing is right and this isn't. This is something else. <laughs> well, this summer we've realized that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think actually this summer it's kind of like the living git blame, right? It's like, well, I can just say that it's the tool and no one's going to question it because it may well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so there has, it does feel a lot of that. But I think, you know, now that teams can work closer together, a lot of those things get identified a lot quicker in the process. And we realize, okay, it's not our code. Let's move on, wait to the next release of, you know, iOS or patch of a tool and see if that problem still exists. So one of the questions I wanted to ask is how do you deal as like a team lead? Yeah, you have to somehow have decisions being made like the ridiculous one of how to deal with indentation Mm -hmm. or like, okay, how do like you said, you have to decide on an X code version to all everybody agree on. How do you deal with that kind of stuff? Yeah. Is that usually like something where a team lead deals with that and just kind of says, this is what we're going to do, but taking an input from the team or what are your thoughts on that? Or what are some other things that people need to discuss before a project or a team is actually formed? Yeah, I feel like sometimes I sort of wear three hats and it depending on the meeting as to which one I'm wearing. So I normally start at the level of approaching it as a developer so that, you know, let's say, for example, we're looking at, <laughs> I won't go with the tabs and spaces. <laughs> You know, I'll go with the, should we put this in a file by itself or, you know, make a new storyboard, whatever it may be. I like to get feedback from everybody. And then, you know, we'll discuss that. And then once I've got all that feedback from everyone, very quickly, I do have my own thoughts on it. And I tend not to share those at first because I don't want to influence the outcome of anything. You know how, for example, some developers can be, well, let's wait and see what the other guy says you know, or the other girl says, and then, okay, I'm, you know, yeah, mine was such a bad idea that I'm going to agree with theirs. So I think sometimes to the frustration of my developers, I hold back on my opinions until I've got theirs. And then I take all of those, weigh them up with what I'm thinking. And then, you know, I'll come up with what seems like a reasonable conclusion, or at least I feel it is, and then present that back to them and say, okay, you know, I'm not saying this is the final ruling. How do we feel about this? And then, you know, for example, maybe we're even discussing, should we continue to do this in Objective-C or write this as a Swift class and then bring it in? We'll all discuss that. You know, I like to get pros and cons on everything. I mean, like no decision is going to be perfect. There's always a risk involved. Exactly. So I'll take it all, weigh it all up, present it back to them and say, look, this is what I'm thinking we should do. Please try and shoot it down or argue as to why you think it's a really terrible idea. Or do we go with this? And then once I've got that feedback and they let's say everyone comes back and says, nope, we think that's fine. That's the way to go. Then at that point, you know, I sort of switch hats and say, okay, that's what we're going to do. And I try to make it very clear to, to my team members that, you know, we're all a team. We all have our roles, right? And, and I don't get to write as much production code anymore as I maybe would like to. That's their role. And my role at the end of it is whatever decisions we make, 
the responsibility for that decision as to whether it comes out to be good or bad falls with me. So mm -hmm. if we make a decision as a team and we all agree it's a good idea and then something goes wrong and it just doesn't work out, that's my fault. You know, and my role is to act as the blocker and say, okay, you know what? Lesson learned. Next time we'll ask more questions. Right. I mean, that's just the responsibility of being a leader. I really like how you set that scenario up. Are there particular things that you have felt in the past that like have been the difficult decisions to make when setting up a project or a team? Yes. Yeah. No, the, I think a big one that probably we all face but is even harder as a team is using third-party libraries. Yes. And, you know, there are some times when it's just such a good idea and it's so obvious that it's like, yeah, we should totally use this library. Why would we spend hours re-engineering our own one when we can tell on, say, you know, GitHub or something that hundreds of thousands or thousands of people are using this one, so it must be okay, you know? And so then we'll adopt it and start using it and testing it and things like that but still with the approach of maybe we'll throw it out eventually for some reason. You know, so that's always one of the hardest decisions because personally, I like to have as few as possible third-party dependencies and not because I don't trust the source or anything like that. It's just anytime you have a dependency, you never know when that project may be abandoned. Right. And now you've got your code base that's probably out in production and what do you do? You know, do you take that library out and write your own? Or if you find an issue, do you fix the library yourself? Something like that. And that's the other area that gets difficult is the whole closed source from a company that you work for and open source libraries. Do you favor like an open source third-party library over a closed source one? Personally, I've always been in favor of the idea of open source, you know, and that comes back to, to my thing of giving back to the communities that have helped me get where I am. And so I, I prefer that approach. But at times, of course, there are those areas where it's like, okay, you know, whatever it may be, a security policy at a particular company or something like that, you know, because I worked in places where it's like, we're not going to use open source. It's too risky, you know? And in some ways that actually makes it a little easier for you. The decision's not on you now. Exactly. So now it's like, okay, it's going to take me an extra six months because I've got to write this library, but thanks, you made it for me, <laughs> you know? And that's interesting too, because... Then that day comes along when you realize that, oh, I'm in management now. That's my decision. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, suddenly it doesn't seem so easy, you know. One of the things that I think is an easy decision, but it's an important thing to implement is source control. 90% of companies, well, maybe not 90, 80% of companies are going to use Git, right? Yeah. You'll have some that are still on older technologies or maybe like they're on something like Mercurial. Mm -hmm. But typically, like you need to have some sort of source control stuff set up for your project. What are some particulars that you've seen when it comes to managing that? Yeah. And it's very interesting because I just recently did an episode on, you know, sort of three reasons why I think you should use source control, even if you're not a team, but especially if you're a team and I'll put the link in the show notes for that. But what we do and the one that I favor, it has some issues, but I found it works really well. Are you familiar with one called Gitolite? No, I'm not. Right. So what it is, it's like a server-side component, and it has a configuration file. Basically, it sits on a machine. It doesn't even, you know, doesn't have to be a dedicated server. It just acts like one. And you can have a web interface for it. But primarily, it has a configuration file where you can list the repositories and you set up access groups. 
you know, the most popular way is to use SSH keys because it just keeps things right. simple. Right. And so you just put it in the configuration file. And let's say, for example, I'll give you an example of where it makes life really simple. So if you want to create a new repository, you just add it to the configuration file. You can literally just give it a repository name. Okay. And then when you push that file, because it's actually a repository itself. So when you push that back to the administration repo, it sees it and says, oh, that doesn't exist. So therefore, I'm going to go ahead and create that empty repository for you. So is Git Lite like a whole Git server? It does act like a server, yeah. Like I say, I'll give you the link for that because it's, you know, we tried a few and it's not perfect, but it's great for just keeping things simple. Is this as opposed to just having GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket as your server? Right, okay. right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So for example, a great scenario here would be, you know, a lot of companies, some of them, you know, it can be sensitive material. So they don't want to use a, a hosting company like say GitHub or something like that. Not because it's not good, but because, you know, maybe the legal side says you need to keep this within your network. And so you can actually just run Lite within your network and just access it as a remote repository. Okay, okay. It's that simple. You know, like if you're cloning or you want to set up as your remote, you know, normally you would have a dedicated IP, static IP on the machine. And you'd say, okay, you know, here's my remote. It's this IP. And then Lite kicks in on the server side and says, yeah, I got you. Yeah. You know, no problem. Okay. Yeah, because I know a lot of companies that don't feel comfortable hosting their code on GitHub or similar services. So this makes a lot of sense. Just looking at some of the documentation, I like the simplicity of it. Yeah. Do you get a lot of like friction when it comes to suggesting source control at certain companies? Not that I've, okay. you know, come across a lot of the time, you know, companies, of course, you know, do have their own views on what technologies they'd like to use. So for example, you know, I worked at a company where it was very Microsoft centric. Mm -hmm. So you know, naturally there, of course, the assumption is where well, you're going to use. Well, actually, when I was there, it was even back when SourceSafe was a thing. But, you know, eventually it became. Yes, I remember SourceSafe. Okay. Yeah. So it was like, wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed that I remembered that one. But, you know, so they favored the Microsoft Visual Studio approach and all the servers that come with that. You know, that's kind of uh, very much depends what the company sees. But I think these days it's been made a lot easier by things like Git where. The obvious benefits have really helped prove the argument for you. Yes. You know, especially when it comes to like multiple platforms. So for example, you know, I work with Android teams as well, but the nice thing with Git is you learn it once and it's the same everywhere. Yeah, I agree. And it just seems like people are becoming more and more comfortable with putting stuff on the cloud as opposed to where they were like 10 years ago. You know, it's funny because as I sit here in my office at home now, I still have behind me a wall with a, a cabinet that's got all my old hard drives in there. And the realization of, yeah, I just don't need terabytes of space sitting in my house anymore. Right. In a way, it's nice and freeing because once you feel comfortable with cloud services, and I'm not saying they're all fantastic, but once you find the ones that work for you, you know, and you feel comfortable with them, that realization of, yeah, I can access this stuff from anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to carry it. Yeah. You know, even now with my iPad, for example, when we were saying about earlier on, I have an app that I use on my iPad that allows me to access my Git repos. And because my personal websites run on Gatsby.js, I can just push a markdown file to the repo from my iPad, and I know the server in the background is now rebuilding my website. Yes, it's so much nicer than it used to be. 
Speaking of new technologies, what's the best way you've seen for taking your current project and introducing new like APIs or methodologies into a particular Xcode project or app? Sure. So, you know, again, it comes back to that discussion. The very first thing before we do anything is to have a discussion of we know what we need now. But the very first question I always say is, okay, you know, but what do we need next? Or maybe just that realization of reminding developers. And I feel like sometimes this is kind of the team lead kicking in here when you say, okay, you know, this helps us today, but what about tomorrow? And of course, everyone will say, well, we don't know tomorrow. And, you know, it's like, well, exactly. (laughs) So how do we, you know, let's try and do this in a very generic way. One thing I've learned, I think, as a developer throughout the years, and I'm very fortunate that I've had worked for some great people and, you know, lucky that I still get to work with them today. And they taught me to think about tomorrow more than thinking about today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the importance that I realized in that is, yeah, you know, it's almost that don't hard code anything in your brain and as much as you don't hard code it in the code. Right, right. That's a really good way of putting it. I like that. Yeah, you know, when we do APIs, we look at it and we say, right, this is what we want today. Let's make a really ridiculous guess at what tomorrow will be and see if we can cater for that in the design. And, you know, for example, I think it's probably, I don't think it's that uncommon. You know, we have a web team, for example, that we work with that build the APIs for us. And so we have very close discussions about that interaction of what they need, what we need. And, you know, naturally part of that, like I say, is what might we need tomorrow? So for example, you know, does a particular argument or parameter need to be, you know, is it required or can it be optional? You know, and which is the best way to go? If we make it optional, what's the downfall for that? You know, and those kind of things. Well, the thing that people forget is we work in a software industry. And I think like what that means is that everything we do is soft and easily changeable. We're not architects building a building. So like keeping that kind of agility in mind when we build stuff and understanding that's going to change over time. I think it's like a healthy mindset. Like you said, what do we need for tomorrow? And like, how do we allow for those changes in the future? Yeah. You know, and I think that as soon as you you stop and you say, well, what do we need tomorrow? That realization of, oh, yeah, we've all had this situation where you solved the problem today and tomorrow it doesn't work for you. And it's like, well, now I've got to rebuild it again. And it's almost kind of double the time spent on a project, not because you got it wrong, but because you so followed the specifications that you can literally only make that product. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, that makes total sense. And especially, like you say, in today where technologies change in a heartbeat, you know, one minute you're writing Objective-C, this new language comes along called Swift, and you're like, oh, well, boy, now we've got to work with this. And especially as well... In the mobile field, things are moving so fast that I always tell my developers, you know, and I do believe this, this is what I tell myself is, I learned from my flash background, whatever I know today as a skill set, five years from now is probably completely redundant. Yeah. And to always be open to realizing that, you know, and that's an important part of pushing, well, not pushing, but discussing the right solutions is don't go with the one you know, just because it's the one you know. And I think that's a really good mindset i think it's just wisdom working in the industry is that we're going to rewrite this code at some point it's not in stone it's not going to like stay there forever right and just understanding that like you have to be flexible to changing your code within yeah and it's you know as well like a discussion i had recently with some folks is not only do your skills 
need to be open to changing, but the technologies that you use and to not be afraid of something you know nothing about. And I always try to instill that curiosity in people. You know, I have this terrible problem that I'm always wanting to learn something. (laughs) And so it's great because I think I just got lucky and made the right choices of technologies to learn in my career. But at the same time, it's that knowing that play with as many things as you can, because I learned so many things, for example, about object-oriented programming from doing Flash and ActionScript, yes. that to this day, that knowing that I learned, I can still apply to a different language. Yep, yep. And that is so important for developers to realize that it's not about the syntax, it's about the ideas. Man, working on ActionScript, that takes me back. Oof. Oh, it was, yeah, it was just, oh. <laughs> it was not a programmer's language. No, no, and definitely the tools were, like, painful. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we close out? You know, I think one thing that you touched on that um, to anyone that's a developer now that is thinking about management, my advice would be, having gone through it, is don't be afraid of it. All it is, it's kind of like that definition of, what's a junior developer, what's a senior developer, what's a team lead. It's really a question of confidence, I think, a lot of the time. And knowing that, hey, you're going to screw up as much as everybody else. But there are times when people are going to look to you to at least appear confident. you know. And as long as you believe the choices that you're making are the right ones. And you can defend them. Exactly. And I always tell every single member of my team is like, hey, never be afraid to question anything I suggest because nothing says I'm right. 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 I think it's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And asking me to justify it is really just a nice, polite way of saying, are you sure? Yep. And I think that that's always having that discussion, you know, and maybe that's really the big takeaway here is put the egos aside that, you know, we all know exist, we can't help it. And just remember that every single thing is a discussion, because if you discuss it, someone's going to learn something. Mm -hmm. And I think like, just make sure you have all the facts straight before you make a decision. And like, you're never going to know what you don't know, right? So I like your point about confidence. I think that's a big part of it too. Yeah, and I, because I want developers to be confident. And so, you know, like you say, a lot of the time, if they tell me they've got a problem, I'll tell them, you know, we'll go away, research the answer, come back and tell me about the problem and propose an answer to me. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no, it's been a pleasure. I'm such a huge fan of the podcast that when you asked me, it was like, oh, I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> How can people find you? So I have two places on the web. There's peterwidham.com, which is kind of my home for everything. I got lucky and got my name as a domain name. Nice. That doesn't happen very no, often now. Really. But the other one where I think I made the right choice was within about 10 minutes of Swift being announced in 2014, I got compileswift.com before anybody else did. And that's where I have the podcast and basically anything Swift related. Yeah, and you should definitely check out Peter's podcast. There's some a lot of good nuggets in there. I really liked the stuff about source control and some of the uh, recent stuff about their release cycle, which we talked about earlier today. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Really appreciate it. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion, as well as my company at BrightDigit and BrightDigit.com. If you have any feedback on the show, questions or topics you want me to cover, or if you're interested in being a guest, reach out to me on Twitter and Thanks again for joining us for this program and we'll talk to you later.